We were out of town last weekend visiting family for a high school graduation out in uh, Virginia. Uh, we got to hear a commencement address. That's the kind of thing that you hear this time of year at those graduation ceremonies. Uh, you know, they basically are meant to serve as that one last bit of counsel, that one last golden nugget of wisdom that you can pass on uh, to these uh, former students before they are released released out into the wild world out there. And in the days since, as I have uh, been listening to and reading about a little bit in terms of commencement addresses in other places, in the university setting in particular, I was reminded that, that not just is it an opportunity to you know, get, plant a little bit more wisdom on these young charges, but it's also these commencement addresses, can they have a value as, as something of a cultural barometer. Depending on who is speaking, and depending on the setting, and depending on what is communicated, you can get a sense over time as you track the, the themes of the messages of where we are as a culture, and perhaps even if you pay close attention and think it through, where we're going. So commencement addresses. I've been thinking about that here as of, of late. And then also, just I guess maybe this in general, our need that all of us have, all of us, all of us, for orientation, to be guided, to be prepared, to be steeled, to be briefed, to be advised for what's coming, for what lies ahead. And, and in our text this morning, here in, uh, in Matthew 3, we have something of that that Matthew is giving us, an, an orientation, you might say. He's preparing us, he's advising us, he's getting us ready for yet more of what's coming and what his revealed not just these two, I'll put it this way, these two things, not just one, not just the other, but these two things. One, Jesus' ministry, what's coming, what he's come, who he is and what it is that he's come to be and to do. But a second thing, an orientation as to what it means to follow him. So who it is and what it is that he's come to be and to do, and also with that, an orientation as to what it means to follow him. If you have a Bible with you, turn or click whatever that, that format is that you have there with you uh, to Matthew 3. This is the first of the Gospels that we have, Matthew, then Mark, Luke, John uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it's the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, uh, and we are in, in the course of our study through Matthew's Gospel. We are now in Matthew 3, right here on the very end of Matthew 3. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 17. So Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13, on through verse 17. Hear now the word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, with the psalmist there in Psalm 1, we... Long to be like the tree planted by the streams of water, 
yielding fruit in season with leaves that do not wither and all that we do prosper. Standing, standing with you and thriving in this life and coming to know you. What does it mean as you charge us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves? What does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, we thank you just for the time we've had thus far uh, in the singing and how that has a way of, of sh- uh, not just expressing the heart, but shaping the heart. We thank you for even just a little bit of time in, in the scripture reading that we've had. That, that was time well spent. We thank you for these few minutes we have to explore together uh, this text here in the Gospel of Matthew. And we ask that you would give us ears with which to hear and eyes to see what was going on and the ability to understand and run with, live out, live out of what we're seeing here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to try and picture what's going on here, okay? Uh, you have crowds, crowds coming from, from all over, towns, villages, all these remote places uh, there to the Jordan and uh, just north there of the the, uh, the Dead Sea, south of the Galilee region. The word is spreading of this man, John, of this movement that is afoot, this revival amidst God's people there in the first century. His message, his ministry, they're coming in droves to hear him and they're responding, responding to his message of, of repentance, not just with their words, but going so far as with their their actions and receiving this baptism by going down into the Jordan River and being baptized with this baptism of repentance. Um, It's interesting, the the site today is is a bit different uh, than it was many years ago there on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, Archaeologists have found churches that date way back to at least the, the 5th century, if not before the river itself is a little different. You know, rivers, flowing bodies of water do tend to change over the passage of, of time. Uh, and certainly the Jordan River is, is no exception. So the site itself is, is a little different. But, you know, there are still crowds of people coming to that place. Uh, pilgrims coming every day, all through the year. Most especially at, at certain festival days, like the Eastern Orthodox Church's celebration of Epiphany in early January, which is why in early January when we were there, we couldn't go there because it was too crowded, too overrun. Tour buses, you can't get in there in celebrations like that. But that's okay. That's okay. Um, My point being, the crowds. The crowds are there. And to such crowds, John says these words. Can you imagine? Can you imagine hearing this for the first time, what it is he's saying there in verses 11 and 12? I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So so John is speaking of of a baptism, another baptism that will go far beyond just a declaration of the need for this inner cleansing. He is speaking of one who is coming with a baptism that's actually going to do it, that's actually going to work this inner spiritual cleansing and the bringing of new life. John is speaking here of one who is coming with a winnowing. He's not talking about just a voice 
a voice like he was crying out in the wilderness in preparation, be ready for the judgment to come. He's talking about the one who is the judge who is coming. He says this one that's coming is mightier than I am to whom we must submit with the whole of our lives that we are called to serve with our whole hearts that we are to follow wherever He leads. And in that context, in that setting, with all that prepared and the table set, you might say, comes Jesus. From just a few miles up in the north, coming down to this site, there on the east side of the Jordan River, comes Jesus. And if you're there amidst those crowds, you have to be asking yourself, who is this? Who is this? And what is it that he has come to do? And what does all this mean? And what Matthew is showing us here from the start is that from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, some essential things are being revealed. Some essential things are being revealed, things that we need to heed as we follow Him. Some essential things are being revealed, things that we need to heed as we follow Him. Now, how are those things being, how are those things, these essential things, being revealed? I'll tell you, three ways. It's in your outline. Three ways. First, the obedience of the Son. Secondly, through the descent of the Spirit. And thirdly, through the voice of the Father. Through those three things, we learn some essential things. So let's look at this in turn together. First, the obedience of the Son. You know, it's interesting what we read here in verses 13 through 15. These are Jesus' first words that he speaks in the Gospel of Matthew. Worth paying attention to. What's the first thing? What's the first thing recorded by Matthew that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Let's start. Verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Here we learn some vital things about the obedience of the Son. Now, we could understand John's hesitation in baptizing Jesus, right? Because John clearly recognizes himself as the lesser person. He recognizes his baptism as the lesser baptism. He also recognizes that Jesus doesn't need it like everyone else does. He has no need of being cleansed of sin. And yet, you note, Jesus doesn't argue with him. He doesn't refute any of those points, those assumptions. But what he does say is that it is fitting it is fitting that I do this. It is fitting. It is appropriate. It is good. It is right. Even more, it is vital. It is necessary. Why? This is Jesus' posture of humility. He doesn't, in a sense, he doesn't need this, but in another sense, he has to do it. Because his posture of humility is connected to his purpose to save. He doesn't need to do it, but he has to do it. It's part of his mission. What does he say? Again, verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does he mean by this? Well, partly he's endorsing John. 
Partly he's saying to all of these crowds, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's ratifying, I guess you could say, Jesus' stamp of approval on everything that John has been saying. The, the movement itself, his ministry, his message, partly that's what's going on here, but that's not all. He's not just endorsing John. Jesus is identifying with his people. He is not standing off apart. He is not separating himself from his people. This, this baptism was something, that, in a sense, that was commanded by God. It's what the, it would have been appropriate to do as a follower of Yahweh, the Lord, at the time, to receive that baptism. And so Jesus submits himself to it. In fact, you could really argue it this way. He came for it. He came for it. Now, by that, what I mean is, is this. He came to stand in our place, to identify with us, not to separate himself from us, but to identify himself with us. He came as the one to, to stand in our place as our substitute. As this, You see this? It's very clear here. He is the sinless one. The sinless one who then acts as the substitute. The Lamb of, as John says in his gospel, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Keep your thumb here in, in Matthew 3. Let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. It's a passage we uh, read all the time. Uh, Good Friday services here. Uh, we would do well to read it other times too. Um, Isaiah 53, a, a text that was written some 700 years before these events. Uh, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Point being that from the start, the son's obedience was made clear. We need to heed that as we follow him. Think with me just about the trail of tears for a moment. Not one of our prouder moments in U.S. history. The forced exile of the Cherokee from their ancestral homes. I alluded to this a little while ago as a team. Uh, I'm going with a team from AIM next month. Uh, out there to the, into the hills, the Smokies of North Carolina. So some thousand of them refused to be moved. And so they went hiding up into the hollers of those mountains. Um, there was a man named Solly. Solly uh, signed a deal with the U.S. government. Um, and the guarantee that he was given was 640 acres of his own and the right to stay. Some months later... U.S. soldiers came and tried to force Solly and his family out west, out of his land. Solly resisted. There was a struggle. Two soldiers were killed. Solly and his family headed into the hills to hide. The U.S. Army worked out a deal with two of Solly's friends down in the valley and said, if you will go up into those hills and find him and bring him back, we will let the rest of you stay. Otherwise, we're going to hunt you down. So his two friends went up into those hills, and they found him. And they explained the situation. 
And Solly, after agonizing over it, agreed to give himself up, he and most all but one of his sons and his sons-in-law, to be executed. They gave themselves that others would be free, really for their lives. Back to our text. Jesus says here in verse 17, excuse me, verse 15, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Do you understand that in and through Christ, his finished work on the cross, all righteousness has been fulfilled. Through his living in our place, the life that we should have lived, through his dying in our place, paying the penalty we deserve to pay, all righteousness has been fulfilled. He is our substitute. The demands of all the demands of God's justice and mercy have been met with the finished work of Jesus. It, it's, it's done. As, as Paul wrote a couple of decades later, uh, after these events, in a letter that we know now as 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is good news. What if we believed it? <laughs> what, if, what if you you and I, what if we actually, I mean like really, really took this to heart? It would flow out of our lives. I know Kevin Twitt talked about this last week. Our worship, right? Our worship would be filled with this crazy but beautiful admixture of awe and wonder and joy and thanksgiving. Our, our, our hunger for God's Word would be such that we'd be longing, we'd be digging, digging into it, that such that we would know and grow yet all the more in what we find because we're just impelled. Well, I, want to, I want to know more of this one who has done this for me. And instead of being so stingy with our time, our talent, and our treasures, trying to find the ways that we can, you know, not give, we'd be looking, trying to find creative, crazy, out-of-the-box ways to give yet more of ourselves. And in our relationships, oh my goodness, not just giving, but we'd be so much quicker to forgiving because of all that he has done, because of this that we've taken to heart, the fact that all righteousness in Jesus has been fulfilled for us. What if we took that to heart? What if we believe that? Do you see the powder keg that's laid here? The possibility of change in our lives? From the start, the son's obedience is set before us, is made clear. We need to heed that as we follow him. Secondly, secondly, it does beg a question, doesn't it? This is the, the Jesus' great work that he is going to carry out has, but you know, already in our context, but in this context was about to. How is he going to do that? How would he be enabled to do that? Well, that takes us to the second point, the descent of the Spirit. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, there is certainly some mystery here as to what those on the ground saw. Uh, 
Matthew's using a simile here. You English majors, remember what that was? That's, that's a like. Right? Something like this happened, or a metaphor, or a comparison. Okay? Um, meaning, if you pay, really put your eyes on the text, you see it's not necessarily, I have to burst your bubble here if you've got artwork at home that portrays this, but, well, yeah, but that's not the thing. Um, that uh, it's not necessarily a physical feathered bird that appeared there, but rather it was, Matthew tells us, the other gospel writers do too, it was something like that, something physical, somehow, perhaps that, but it comes down at least like that. It's, it's hard to know, some mystery here, but something was seen, something happened here, and Matthew is speaking uh, about that, um, and we know that it's, it's likely representing something, symbolizing something, uh, this is interesting because the, the, the Jewish mind, the Jewish thought really wasn't tuned into the Spirit of God being equated to a dove, and yet maybe it could be hearkening back to this, the very beginning. If you can't find this, uh, Genesis 1.1, um, come on, Genesis 1.1, keep your thumb in Matthew 3. Listen, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It may be, that's what's being implied here, hearkening back in the way Matthew's describing this, is an allusion back to creation, helping the reader understand that, that with the coming of Jesus and what he's about to, to, to do, is a recreation, a renewal of everything, the whole creation that he is inaugurating. Quite possibly. In any case, whatever the metaphor, the simile means, we know that this is the marking of the event of the coming of the Spirit. And there's certainly Old Testament precedent for this. Again and again through history, the working of God with his people. God sending His Spirit to equip, to enable His servants to carry out their assigned task. We see that like repeatedly with the prophets and others in the Old Testament. But there's something different here. There's something different going on here. And, and it was alluded to in the text that Stephen read just a little while ago, Isaiah 42.1. You can turn there if you want or you can look in your bulletin. We, we read it just a few minutes ago. Isaiah 42, verse 1. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy here. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, how do we see this playing itself out? How do we see the role, the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the ministry of Jesus? How do we see that playing itself out as recorded in Matthew's gospel? Well, let me give you two places. Actually, if you just go forward like three verses, you see it. Matthew 4. Plan is to get into this next week. Matthew 4, verse 1. The, the guidance of the Spirit. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The guidance of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. Well, not just that, but the empowerment of the Spirit. Turn with me to chapter 12, Matthew 12, verse 8. Matthew 12, excuse me, not verse 8, verse uh, 28. Uh, this is in the context of a controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees, not the only one, one of several. And in the course of that discussion, listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Now, this is really hard for us to get our minds around. Jesus is God, right? Fully divine, right? Fully human, though, too. I don't pretend to understand this, but the texts are clear. It is by the Spirit of God in and through Jesus that we see him carrying out his ministry. That is clear. That is quite clear. From the start, the Spirit's descent and the vital and the essential nature of the, the Spirit's descent, we see that, we need to heed that as we follow him. Now, what, how might that, what would that look like? Well, you've got a quote here in your quotes and notes page. The second one is a quote from uh, Edith Schaefer's book, Labrie. Now, you need to understand something. Just a quick backstory here on the ministry of Labrie. Francis and Edith Schaefer, back in the 1950s, began this ministry that we now know as Labrie. It's French for the shelter. Labrie was not just a, a think tank uh, there in the Swiss Alps, a place you could go and get away from it all and just you know read and study. You did read and study, and you did explore the claims of Christ, and the imp- but not just that, but the implications of it. They were struggling, striving there for whoever would join them in that venture, and it's still the case today and there in Switzerland and the other locations of Labrie, to, to not just talk about Christianity, but actually strive and struggle to live it out and its radical implications in our lives. Okay, in that context, Edith is writing one morning early on in their ministry. They're sitting together at the breakfast table, and there's this conversation, and she records something of that in this book. Okay, here's the quote. One morning at Chalet Bijot's breakfast table, Fran had said to me, supposing we had awakened today to find everything concerning the Holy Spirit and prayer removed from the Bible. That is, not removed the way liberals would remove it, but that God had somehow really removed everything about prayer and the Holy Spirit from the Bible. What difference would it make practically between the way we worked yesterday and the way we would work today and tomorrow? What difference would it make in the majority of Christians' practical work and plans? Aren't most plans laid out ahead of time? Isn't much work done by human talent, energy, and clever ideas? Where does the supernatural power of God have a real place? Challenged by this, we began to think and look over our own lives and work, and we asked God to give us something more real in our work of the future. Okay, so now back to Matthew 3. If Jesus, think with me here, if Jesus needed the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his life, how much more do you and I? We who are prone to wander, we who are so quick and given to fall in this temptation, we who uh, are so stiff of neck and hard of heart, if Jesus needed the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his life, how much more do we? Follow-up question. Why then aren't Christians more prone to, more given to, prayerful dependence upon the guidance and power of the Spirit in their lives? 
all that being true? That's a really complex question. I'm going to skip the answer. No. Um, here, here, I'll take a stab at it. Just very simple. It is at least partly because we have too low a view of the tasks and charges that we have been given and too high a view of ourselves. We think too little of the things that we've been called to be and to do and way too much of our ability to do them. Oh, my friends, from the start, the Spirit's descent is made very clear and how essential it is. We need to heed that as we follow Him. That takes us to the third point. Okay, so you have the obedience of the Son that therein impels, that requires the descent of the Spirit. But there's something else here. It's not just that. We have one other thing, and that is the voice of the Father. Verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now in this, for the Jewish ear, there would have been echoes heard from the past. And keep your thumb here in Matthew. Go with me, if you will, to the Psalms, Psalm one, excuse me, Psalm two, which conveniently comes after Psalm one. But Psalm two, uh, verse seven. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you." Skipping down to verse ten. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss. The son, that's an action of submission, kicks the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is clearly alluding to a messianic king, a royal figure invested with divine power. Something else here, that these words here, spoken from heaven and heard that day on the face of the earth, uh, something else that, that Jewish ears would have quickly picked up on, and, and that is actually going right back to Isaiah 42. The, the very verse that we read a, a moment ago, you may have picked up on this. Isaiah 42, verse 1, it comes up again here. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So here you have this royal figure, this messianic king, this chosen one, this servant, who is delighted in, who God Himself has put His affections upon. And it's, it's being proclaimed there for all to hear. He's in the, picking up these echoes of the past. And these are words that were needed in that moment. Words that were needed to be heard in that moment. Certainly at least by those who were there, by the crowds, by those who were witnesses. You know, for in the days to come when they would be tempted to dismiss Jesus and his message. Can you imagine the effect of hearing words from heaven? And maybe it might push you, remind you, give you the ability to then say, well, I, I know, it sounds crazy what he's doing, what he's saying, but you know, remember what we heard. But those words were not just for the crowds. Those words were for Jesus himself. Because the day would come, and it wouldn't take long, when they would dismiss him. And he would need to hearken back to what he heard that day as the God-man, fully human, 
fully tempted to despair like any of us would be. Because the days were coming when he would be resisted and rejected and rebuked and reviled. And he would have to remember these words of God's affection and affirmation and adoration of him. To hold on and press forward. You know, from the start, the Father's voice is made clear as an essential thing. We need to heed that as we follow him. Another quote in your quotes and notes here may be wondering, why is that there? Okay, this is uh, the orders of the day from General Eisenhower on D-Day. Just on the eve, just on the eve of the Allied invasion of Europe that then turned the tide of the World War II, at least in the European theater. Much talk, rightly, you know, just a week or so ago about this very thing. Listen to what Eisenhower said. Stirring words, soldiers, sailors, airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. I'll just stop there. Those are stirring words. They kind of get your red blood pumping. But we need more than stirring words. We need more than bravado. I'm going to go back, kind of piggybacking on the application point I made regarding with the descent of the Spirit, that sort of if Jesus, how much more us thing. If Jesus, which he did, needed to hear these words of affection from his Father, his words of approval, these words of affirmation from heaven itself, if Jesus needed to hear such words, how much more do you and I? How much more do we need to hear that and know that and take it into the, the, the bosom of our soul? We, who are tempted, tried, right, the old hymn, tempted, tried, and sometimes, I don't know, for me, usually failing. We who are wondering so often, this time I may have gone too far. We who are so prone to, to wander and, and maybe even turn our back on the truth, which is our life. We who are understandably at times embarrassed by what we've done, ashamed of what we've done, afraid of what the implications could be of what we've done. Do we not need to hear these words pronounced upon us? What child, think with me, just of children, little children, some in this room, others down the hall, what child does not need to be affirmed and reaffirmed of their father and mother's love and affection of them. Which of us does not need to draw strength from, to be reminded of, to be assured of our father's adoration of us, to hear from heaven itself, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Follower of Jesus, do you know you have that this morning? 
Do you know? Do you know? You need to know because it's true. The obedience of the Son, the descent of the Spirit, and the voice of the Father, these are essential things that are revealing, revealed right here in this one text. And all through Matthew's Gospel and all through Genesis and the Revelation. By the way, you could probably pick up on the fact that there are allusions here to the Trinity, right? Uh, which is certainly a mystery. A tri-unity. One God, three persons through all eternity. Mystery, but nonetheless a reality. In, in the words of Rich Mullins, I didn't make it, but it is making me, right? It is real. It's how God has revealed himself to us. It's, it's who he is, and it's not going to change. Hold that point. The, uh, let's try and illustrate this for a moment. The Women's World Cup just got underway in Canada last week. Um, here's a scenario. I just made it up. Didn't actually happen, at least not yet. Imagine for a minute one of the U.S. star players, let's say Alex Morgan, is running down the field. She's right in front of the opposing team's gold box. Cindy LaRue sends a cross across. Well, of course, across. It's a little high, though. So Morgan, thinking maybe she could get away with it, bats the ball down with her hand to her feet. Referee sees it, calls it, whistle blown, possession changes, other team gets the ball. It doesn't do any good to protest. Everybody in the stadium knows what the rules are. Every player, every coach, every fan knows how the game is played and nothing, no matter who you are or how badly you want it to, is going to change that. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. It's who He is. It's not going to change. These are things that we need to keep in front of us take hold of and embrace into our hearts. These things, what things? The obedience of the Son that is the security of our standing. The descent of the Spirit that is our enablement and empowerment to serve. The voice of the Father that is our assurance of His love. Those are all essential things that aren't going anywhere that we desperately need all the time and need to be reminding ourselves of all the time that we would follow Him. Let's pray. Oh God, You are a triune God. That's how You have revealed Yourself to us. Same in substance, equal in power and glory, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a mystery in that. How can that be? There's, there is no analogy. There is no metaphor. There is no simile. In this created world that really captures that without falling to one side or the other. That's how you've revealed yourself to us. And in that we see it's something of how we're to serve you, how we're to submit ourselves to you, how we're to follow you. In this we see our security. In this we see our dependence. In this we see our assurance. Oh, we pray that you'd help us hear. Help us hear. Help us to embrace these realities. To explore them together yet more. 
and their implications and to walk in the, these ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.